Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Weising, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I spoke to Arthur Brightman, who is the co-founder of the Tezos blockchain and a member of the Tezos Foundation Council. If you've been around crypto for a while, you know that Tezos has been there uh, since 2017 when it raised $232 million in its initial coin offering. I talked to Arthur about that and about any concerns he has about going the ICO route uh, now that we've seen the SEC get more involved with enforcement actions. We talked about his time uh, as a quantitative analyst at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Uh, We went back uh, into his childhood and sort of delved into his um, early love of uh, thinking about democracy and the way that voting confers uh, rights and obligations on folks. Uh, It's something that he brought to Tezos, uh, which has um, a very interesting embedded voting mechanism so that the blockchain can be updated in real time as things come up that uh, its users want to uh, change or, or implement. Um, so we talked about all of that stuff and about where it's headed now uh, and it's big in the NFT space and uh, with, with art and music. And we talked uh, a little bit about his time at Google X where he helped design the systems for self-driving cars to make left turns. So I thought that was an interesting part of the conversation. Uh, so let's get to it and hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hi, Arthur. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, I have been looking forward to speaking with you because, uh, to, to be honest, I don't know a lot about Tezos and you are the co-founder uh, of the Tezos blockchain. And so I've been doing my research and digging into it and uh, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and I'm also intrigued with your background in on Wall Street um, when you were at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and just really looking forward to digging into all that stuff and and to hear your views just on the wider space at the moment. Um, so yeah, thanks again. Thank you for having me. I thought you know we just jump into it um, and and kind of go back to when you were writing the white papers that laid out the idea for Tezos. And I I was hoping you could just tell me to start with what what was the idea and what was the problem that you were trying to solve by creating Tezos. Well, it's a common misconception, but the, the, the Tales White Paper was written by uh, a pseudonymous contributor named uh, L.M. Uh, Goodman. Uh, but when I was uh, starting to work on Tezos, the, the thing that um, interested me uh, most was the notion of, uh, of innovation. So we had Bitcoin that had come out, which was a massive innovation. And Bitcoin being a... Being a and we're pro- talking like 2014 here, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So I, I got interested in Bitcoin very early on, I think, you know, like as early as 2010. But the, the thing that fascinated me was not only that Bitcoin was possible, but all of the ideas that flourished around it. Uh, so Bitcoin was there, Bitcoin was working, Bitcoin was also flawed in several ways. And, and, and people were, were thinking through it. So they were thinking through how can Bitcoin, you know, be be more private, uh, not have every transaction exposed to everyone? How can Bitcoin be more scalable? Uh, are there extension of transactions? Can we, can we do other things? Can we do smart contracts on these blockchains? Mm-hmm. Um, do we need mining? Are there uh, ways to reach consensus which are safer and less costly than, uh, than proof of work? So 
I started reading all of the all of the work around this, and I and I found it fascinating. But there was a meta problem that I was interested in, which is these systems are decentralized. Uh, so, are we going to be condemned to these ideas that any new innovation has to be launched as a separate coin? And that, that doesn't that doesn't make sense because fundamentally the economics is that everything should consolidate towards uh, one currency. But you don't want to have to replace your currency every single time you have some important innovation. Mm-hmm. So how does uh, how, how do you how do you reconcile the need for stability and the need for innovation? There was also, I would say, just a, a, a general um, public good provision problem in Bitcoin. Uh, there's some public good provision that happens through mining. So miners get a reward. So the way you pay for the security of the network is via inflation. So Bitcoin is uh, this inflation built in in every block. But there's a lot of other public good that uh, that you could be facing, such, uh, such as, for example, you might need to convince people to do things with your network. You might need to promote it in different ways. And uh, private actors might have some personal incentive to do that, but maybe not enough of an incentive. Mm-hmm. And that led me on the idea of governance. Uh, essentially, you you want to have a governance layer so that the people using the system can coordinate uh, and do things and do more than just uh, than just use it. Uh, and they can coordinate on deciding uh, what innovations are worthwhile and what innovations are not worthwhile. And they can coordinate on funding public goods. So this was. Can the, I just uh, can I jump yeah. in and, and ask um, just for folks who might not be familiar with the term public goods? What what do you mean by that? Well, the notion of a public good is it's a good that uh, everyone benefits from, um, that people cannot easily be excluded from, and and and, and it's costly. So the, the typical example, for example, is a uh, is a public park. If you have a public park, maybe property value goes up. Everyone benefits from having a public park because they enjoy going to the park. However, it's difficult to exclude people from the public park because you would have to basically have a gate and you would have to charge people or you would have to check that they have a ticket to enter the park. So you, uh, a private park may be more difficult to run than just a public park that's easily accessible. Mm-hmm. The problem uh, with something like a public park is how do, you, how do you pay for it? In principle, you could go to everyone and say, ah, well, you know, like, please pay for, the, pay for the public park you benefit, but then you get a free rider problem where some people will say, well, you know what, thank you very much, I'll... Um, I'll, uh, I'll benefit from the advantage of the of the public park, uh, but I uh, but I don't want to uh, but I don't want to pay for it. And then the question is, what do you do? And uh, the traditional answer to that is, you know, some form of uh, some form of governance. So sometimes the governments can the, the governance can be voluntary. So you might have people who you know form homeowner association and they use that as a way to, uh, to pay for public good. You could have. People who want to do things together, they form a corporation and uh, they also uh, basically use that as a form of governance, use corporate law. Uh, Sometimes it takes uh, forms which can be coercive. So when people think of public goods, most of the time they're thinking of government and taxes. Right. And Uh, so in a blockchain context, that would be uh, aligning incentives like in a positive way so that the people in charge of the network are incentivized not to do nasty things or bad things uh, in in the network. Is that kind of the the point? Yeah, it's it's not just about aligning incentives. It's so. I guess another way way to frame the question is like, why do you need governance for anything? And in general, there's a lot of things that you can solve without governance when you have property rights. So if you have very clear property rights and you say, well, this is my house and this is your house. And what is the governance procedure? Like, how should we decide, you know, uh, on like, 
what can be done with each houses. And with a simple answer is like, well, I do whatever you want, I want with my house, and you do whatever you want with your house. Uh, and governance is necessary once you start having property which is shared. So if instead of living in houses, we're living in an apartment building, and that apartment has an elevator, uh, then we then you know the, the elevator is shared between the two um, the, the, the two tenants in this building, uh, and they might and they need they need a way to pay for the elevator repair person. So then they need to have a governance system that says, well, who decides, you know, who decides uh, when to repair the elevator, who decides uh, right. uh, how much would, to pay, and so on and so forth. So you need, right. you need governance. Right, have monthly dues and whatnot to have exactly. Like, yeah. Okay. Got it. So you're looking at Bitcoin. Bitcoin does not have that governance structure on it. That's one of its flaws. It has some. It, it has, it has some, some. But it's, it's as, as you know, and everybody, well, very hard to make changes in that network, no, 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 right? No, no, no. It has some around, uh, but, but governance doesn't have to be about making changes. Uh, Bitcoin has governance around uh, the block reward, for example. So Bitcoin has a way of, a, the security of the Bitcoin network is a public good and it's paid by inflation. You know, so basically as a Bitcoin holder, you are taxed to pay miners to maintain the security of the network. It's a voluntary tax because you decided to buy and hold Bitcoin in the first place, but it's still like very similar to, uh, without the coercive aspect, it's, it's, it's still like from an economic perspective, very similar to a tax funding a public good. And there's a perception, I would say, because a lot of the early adopters of, uh, of Bitcoin, like myself, I, you know, are, are very strong um, libertarians. There's a tendency among libertarians to, to try to pretend that public good problems are not real. You know, it's like, oh, there's no such thing as a public good problem. But, it, but it's silly, you know, just, you know, you, you can oppose coercion and taxation in many respects and still understand that they are real public good problems and like governance is a good way to, uh, to solve those. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about governance, uh, that's, I think, where we kind of went on that tangent. But so, so take me back to, to the, your thoughts there and what, how that led um, to, to Tezos. Well, Tezos was a bit of this, you know, this, this meta idea of saying like, you know, uh, a lot of altcoins were launching with innovations and most of these innovations were not very good. Some of them were, were, were interesting, like some people were trying to have smart contracts, some people were trying to have privacy, uh, faster block times, there were some early experiments in proof of stake. But fundamentally, I realized what, what you need is you don't need any of this thing. What you really need is governance so that these things can be built over time. Uh, so that this thing can be funded and so that this thing can be uh, approved uh, by a governance procedure. So Tails really starts out of this idea of how do you have a solid governance layer that allows a chain to upgrade itself to basically get better over time without centralization. Okay. How did you go about that? Like what, um, one thing I wanted to get into was as you, as Tezos holders, as people who hold Tez, uh, the coin that's native to your blockchain, they vote on proposals, and if a proposal passes, uh, the Tezos blockchain automatically makes the update to the software. And I wanted to just simply ask you, how, how does that happen? What's the mechanism? Uh, well, very concretely, uh, when people vote on a proposal in Tezos, they vote on a hash. And that happens over a, uh, about a three-month period currently. So there's, um, there's three votes. The first vote is an approval voting me mechanism to select one proposal among potentially competing proposals. And approval voting is, uh, is the same as upvoting. Essentially, you have a bunch of proposals and uh, every baker, which are the validator of the network, the people who create the, works, the, the blocks in the network, can select whichever proposals they like. And they can select more than one. 
and you select and you pick the proposal which has the most upvotes. It sounds like a very simple system, but if you are uh, a bit of a uh, election system nerd, uh, uh, people generally rate this as one of the best voting systems. It's one of the most robust. Um, they are theorems that say, you know, uh, the, 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 the Condorcet theorem will tell you that um, basically they, uh, there's no perfect voting system, but the, one of the closest one is approval voting. So after that period, the proposal which was selected is then selected to a vote, which is should we have this or not have this? So there's a yes or no vote that takes place. Then there's a period where there's no vote, just for people to reflect on just what happened. And then there's another confirmation vote. So it's a long procedure and it's conservative by default because you don't really need to like necessarily rush these changes. You want to make sure that you're not harming the network. But not harming the network is more important than, uh, than, than, uh, than, than moving very, very fast. Although, you know, once proposal every six months, three months does let you move quite fast. And in fact, right now, um, the, the Taylor's Bakers are, um, are voting on a proposal called Oxford, Proposals have been historically named after cities uh, in the order of the alphabet. So it started with Athens and then Babylon, and now it's at Oxford, which means it's a... Yeah, um, Mumbai, I think, was the one before that, right? Exactly right. For so Emma. it means yeah. it's a 14th... Uh, sorry, 15th... No, uh, before that was Nairobi. So Mumbai, Nairobi, Oxford. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, so it's a 15th proposal <laughs> to, the, to the network. And then, okay, so there's a period of reflection. There's a second vote. If that passes, um, the... the does the hash um, somehow set into motion that uh, action that was approved by the community? So once the chain is basically, you know, once the, once the logic on the chain has decided on the hash, every single client, every single Tezos node that's running is going to fetch the source code of the upgrade over the network, is going to check that the source code matches the hash, of course, is then going to compile it, and is going to hot swap the protocol so it's going to replace itself on the fly. Uh, and then once that's happened, uh, it's, uh, it has a new protocol. So it's then, in, in some sense, the meta protocol doesn't change. It's just the, the it, it, it just replaces its engine on the fly. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so as opposed to Ethereum, where people choose to either um, download the, the latest version with updates in it uh, on Tezos, it's done automatically and sort of like, uh, the, it's just, it's just what happens. Uh, yeah, the automated part is really is really interesting, but it's not the only, it's not the only difference. Uh, and the important difference is there's this notion sometimes that forking is a form of governance, and it used to be a form of governance for open source projects. So you had open source project, not not in a crypto space, and then people had a, a disagreement over where to take the project, what to build. And then maybe they just, you know, they make a copy of the code, it's open source, they have a license to do that, and they build their own version in their corner, and you build your own version in your corner, and now you have two versions. And that's fine, so long as there's not too much network effect. But you don't want two versions of a coin uh, running at the same time, because fundamentally, you know, you're, you're, going to have the, uh, you're going to have the value, you're going to lose the network effects. And in general, you know, it's when they are... When those forks have happened and those splits have happened, uh, one side will capture 98% of the value and the other side almost nothing. Hmm. Um, and there's this idea that, well, if, if people have a choice whether or not to fork, in some sense, they're exercising their choice in forking and the, the outcome of the fork is a governance procedure. And, um, and, that, and it is true that it is a governance procedure, but the choice is illusory because 
if you run the branch that you prefer you're going, and ignore the other one, you will lose money. Like it's, it's very important essentially for you to decide which branch is going to keep its value and which branch is not going to keep its value. If you have contracts, if you're supposed to receive payments, which coin do you accept? That's quite important. Um, and your incentive is to basically agree with everyone else. Um, it's, it's a game that's been decried by, by, by Thomas Schelling and some, sometimes called a Schelling point where everyone benefits from agreeing on the same thing that everyone else is going to, uh, to agree. And so it's, it's the equivalent of like, instead of having elections and voting for someone, it would be like asking everyone, who would you bet is going to win? And who do you bet is going to win is a very different question than who would you prefer to win. So you're not really expressing a preference in a fork. You're just merely trying to follow the clout. And, and the clout can be very fickle and the clout can be determined by very, very small factors. So I, I think those fork-based governance, they, they, they seem to give a free choice, but in, in, in practice, they're extremely centralizing. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, so before you got into all this um, deep dive, uh, you know, uh, exploration of, of governance and, and the community building, like uh, where do you think that came from in, in your life beforehand? Where... Um, what were you into as a kid, and, and do, do you think this is sort of a continuation of, of, of some something that's fascinated you for your entire life? Oh, yeah, I would say. I, I mean, I was uh, I was an early kid. Uh, I was into a lot of topics. Uh, probably one of my biggest topic being like uh, a child was uh, uh, you know fundamental physics uh, okay. and mathematics were mm -hmm. very big uh, for me. Where did you grow? Uh, I grew up in near Paris. Okay. In a small town in, in Mont Rouge, which is just on the south border of, uh, of Paris, and I grew up in a family of, uh, of not of scientists. You know, my 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 father was a writer and a, a playwright and an actor, uh, and my, uh, my 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 mother worked for the National Printery. So you know, it, it was all okay. in the in, in the letters. Uh, yeah. and, and and I grew up obsessed with math and uh, and science. I I got into programming. I think around the age of nine, but it wasn't my, you know, I was doing it a bit, but it wasn't my main focus. My main focus was really math and physics. I also had a strong interest in finance. Uh, I remember like, I think around the age of nine or so, we visited New York and like my obsession was visiting the New York Stock Exchange. And <laughs> yeah. like, I, I had an interest in stocks. And well, there uh, were still and, people and down there on the floor, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're pretty much gone now. Do you think you uh, gravitated towards science and physics and, and finance as a way to not do what your parents were doing? No, I don't. I, there was no rejection. In, in, in fact, I was doing this and then, you know, still still thinking about the arts and, uh, and such. I, it was just like a natural calling for me. Yeah. Like I was yeah. just like, I had a strong affinity for it. Um, and I started, so, you know, that, that was really my focus for a while. I started switching more towards really math, um, in high school, and then in high school, it became math and like specifically, uh, specifically math and computer science. I would say starting in uh, around the age of like fifteen, that becomes really my thing. Mm -hmm. And what was? Um, were you in it just for the intellectual stimulation? Did you have a job path in mind, or what? How how were you thinking about that? Um, I didn't strongly have a job path in mind. I think. The first time I really started thinking about like specifically uh, specifically a job and, and and focusing on something 
was probably towards middle of high school because I, I, I had had several centers of interest. I had uh, considered research and, and a few things, but I, wanted, I, I, I had a strong interest in finance, strong interest in computer science, and I realized that um, automated trading was a thing. And so uh, I, I decided to go into uh, quant finance, I think probably around like 17 or, uh, or 18. But I was still hesitant, like the, the whole tech uh, aspect was... So I, w- I went to... So what year are we talking there, roughly? Well, I went to university. Uh, so France has a weird system. So the, the thing I was to is technical and Nicole and another university. Uh, and it's like halfway between a master's and a bachelor. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they require you to do a year after that. And so I had become a master and I decided to do a master in the US. And at the time, like until the very last minute, and this is like 2005, I wasn't sure. It was either going to go to... Uh, to New York to do uh, uh, to do like quant finance or or to Stanford to do computer science and so even at that point I was still a bit uh, undecided. Okay, um, but I, I think you chose New York if I remember. I did choose New York. Yeah, for, and, um, for, for bad reasons, by the way. I mean, I'm not. I don't yeah, regret my let's choice. Get into but like, that. what was what were the bad reasons? Um, the campus of the school I went to in France is like in a very rainy place and it's like old buildings from the 70s and I was depressed like being on a campus and I was like, I love, I want to live in the city. I do not want to be on a campus. And I think that ended up being a big factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, uh, NYU is right down there in the West Village, isn't it? Ex- ex- exactly, exactly. I don't it's think Stanford just, would have been so bad either with all the sunshine. No, that is the thing. I, I, I yeah. this, this, later in life, I visited Stanford campus and I would say, oh, you know what? This might have been fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. specifically also like uh, NYU over Columbia because Columbia was up time. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, I highly, highly optimize for just like density. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't take the subway up there every day. New York had a fascination for you when you were a kid and you went to see the New York Stock Exchange. What was it like coming back kind of as a young adult and sort of on a career path? And that, that would have been, I was in New York at that time, right before the financial crisis. It was, it was insane. There was money. It seemed like there was just money flowing in the streets in New York City. Um, and, and everybody was, was doing fabulously well. Uh, was that kind of your experience? Uh, not really. Maybe I'm not like uh, the most perceptive person either. So <laughs> maybe I wasn't paying attention, attention, but I was excited. I was excited to start uh, working in finance. And, you know, I did my master's first. Uh, I was working full time for my master's. So, uh, but the, 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 the first like job I did out of my master's was for a startup hedge fund, which like started trading in 2007. Uh, and then quickly the financial crisis hit. And so, of course, that yeah. like that put some roadblocks into the uh, Tough this hedge, fund's hedge fund. Yeah. So how did you get from there to, was Goldman your first job as a quant analyst? So no, I, I, I did this, well, I worked for the startup hedge fund first, I would say like from 2007 to 2009. In 2009, um, I got interested into high frequency trading. Uh, Goldman was in the news uh, around high frequency trading. Um, I, uh, uh, so I interviewed in a bunch of places and I really liked the, the, the team that I interviewed with at, uh, uh, at Goldman. So I ended up like moving to Goldman Sachs in 2009 in their high frequency trading team. Okay. Uh, the joke I like to uh, well, it's not a joke. It, 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 it's very real. Um, it's it's not meaningful, but it's still funny. Uh, if you've ever heard of like this programmer who left uh, Goldman Sachs and there was a there was a lawsuit because there was a claim that he took some uh, some yeah, uh, uh, some files, Sergey Alenikov, and yes. so he, he he left basically just like very shortly before I joined, and I inherited his chair. Oh, really? Like his computer chair. Yes, <laughs> I was doing a different job, but I was sit- literally sitting in his chair. <laughs> um, were you trading equities? Uh, I was first hired to do um, to work on potentially doing 
uh, treasuries. So they, they, they okay. were like, um, there was uh, East Speed was trading, um, sure. and there was another one, um, was trading Tra treasuries. Trade was, was, was Trade Web doing it? It was, it was not Trade Web, it was East Speed, another one. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was, so it was like accuracy trading. Uh, Maybe? Yes, bro yes, yeah, broker yeah, deck. Broker yeah, tech. That's correct. Yeah. Broker deck and East Speed were doing like treasuries. Uh, then but that was part of the equity group that moved to the fixed income group. And then I tried, we, then we tried to do uh, market making in commodities. So I worked on natural gas, corn, uh, and oil. That was fun. But the, 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 the thing where I had the best fit and the most fun, I would say, is when I started working on uh, foreign ETF. So market making of ETF traded in the US with foreign underliers. Okay. So like, you know, an ETF of Chinese stocks, an ETF of, uh, mm -hmm. of Indian stocks, this type of things. Okay. And, yeah, interesting. So we're getting up into like I, I think you would have been aware of crypto at that point, right? Um, we're we're getting up to 2010 ish. Um, yeah. So I, I got to work quick. So one of the things I was doing at the time is I was organizing the anarcho capitalist meetup in uh, in New York, and it was and that's where you met your club. wife. I have that on the list here. Yes, I did. I did. Uh, <laughs> Can you tell I, me? I, first, I, okay. Yeah. First of all, what is the what is an anarcho capitalist? So anarcho-capitalism is a political philosophy that suggests that, um, you know, all, all, all functions essentially of government could be better saved by private markets, uh, including things like defense and police uh, and courts. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's been popularized by authors like Mary Rosberg and uh, David Friedman, for example. So it is uh, very libertarian, obviously, in, uh, in, uh, in nature. And it was one of my centers of interest. And I was new to New York. And it was a good way to meet people and make friends to start a, uh, a meetup group. So I did that uh, and met a lot of interesting people through, uh, through this. And, uh, and one of them, uh, Barry Mesger, was running the cryptography mailing list, which is where Bitcoin was originally announced. And, you know, the Bitcoin became a, a topic quickly around, uh, around these meetups because, again, everyone who was in this, like, very libertarian circles got interested into this, uh, this you, know, uh, you know, money without government. Yeah. Again, this is an example of, like, uh, a function that people, like, traditionally um, would describe to governments, which can be actually served by private markets. I'm curious um, if you think growing up in France, which obviously is, is a much more socialized country than the United States, um, being in that environment, do you think that is what, did that turn you off and kind of turn you towards um, that sort of uh, more libertarian uh, thought? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. What was it about the French system? Like, is, it, is there anything in, in, in particular that you remember? Was it like the bureaucracy or anything or like something that just sort of like didn't sit well with you? Um, there was a few, a few things. So uh, growing up, I, I, I wasn't very political. I didn't think much about politics. Um, and the, the one thing I had an intuition of is like, I thought there was something weird about the way that people talked about democracy. And specifically, what I didn't like is when people looked at democracy not as a tool of governance, but as something that's intrinsically moral. So essentially... You know, there's two ways you can look at democracy and you can say, well, democracy yields, you know, yields good outcomes in some sense. Like if, you know, people will not vote for horrible people and or, you know, they will vote horrible people out. You know, it's you, you get a bloodless revolution. Uh, you have all these benefits so that, you know, democratic regime will treat people better in general. And th that's an argument I'm very sympathetic with. Uh, I don't think it's ironclad, but I'm sympathetic, very sympathetic to it. So there's another argument, which is no, no, no. 
there's no good and bad governance. It's just intrinsically good that people have a voice in the political process. You know, it's like it's on its own. It's a, as an end. It's important for people to, to 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 voice something, not because it yields a good outcome. And that just from an early age just made very very little sense to me. And so uh, that was my one political thought. And then when I started learning more microeconomics, um, I started looking at a lot of policies. And now I had basically a compass. I had a, uh, a mental framework through which I could think about politics. Because otherwise, I would listen to politicians and I would say, well, you know, he makes a lot of sense. And this other guy makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I guess, you know, they're both right. I don't know. And, mm-hmm. and having the mental compass to actually say, like, wait a second, this is a complete nonsense. That, I would say, was, uh, did, did a big transformation for me. And, you know, obviously, I, my, my parents in France and in the arts were very... Uh, uh, pretty much, you know, pretty left wing. I grew up in a left wing family, um, and, but it was not. It was, you know, it was not a rebellion. Because, <laughs> well, it came really late in life. It was more realization that all of the discourse around policy in France didn't make sense. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if that idea of democracy as being just in and of itself a moral practice dates back to like when I was a kid. Soviet Union was still there, the USSR, and and you know there was a very obviously a very big conflict between the two political systems um, there, like Western democracy versus communism. Um, okay, so we we okay, I think that that's that's really interesting. Um, but how do we um, now? I, I wanted to just touch real quickly on you, you also worked at uh, Google X, which. Um, can you tell tell people that I don't know if a lot of people know this this part of Google X or Google that's called Google X. Can you just t- tell people what that is first of all? Yeah, and we call it Google X because that was the first name of it. But technically, when I was there, it was the official name was called X Colin, the Moonshot Factory. But <laughs> I wanted to call it that. <laughs> that's so it's a big, that's X. a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. So Google X started out as a branch of uh, Google uh, or Alphabet now. Uh, to run crazy bets, crazy experiments, you know, like really uh, moonshots, like technologies which were very, very ambitious and could be revolutionary if successful, but had maybe not necessarily a very high chance of success. And some of the projects that came out of Google Brain, uh, of Google X were Google Brain. So uh, the uh, early deep learning effort of in AI from Google yeah. Yeah, came out of Google X. So that became a branch of Google. And and, and lately they, they kind of like merged with, uh, with DeepMind, which was a Google acquisition to be become Google DeepMind. And another one, and one of the oldest, was Waymo, which was called Chauffeur originally, which was uh, Google's uh, self-driving car effort. Hmm. And uh, so this is what I joined. So I joined Google uh, X, or X Colin, the Moonshot Factory, to work on the self-driving car program. And while I was there, it you know, got spun out as a proper company called Waymo. Okay. But it was still within the Google X office and, yeah. and owned by Alphabet. That sounds like such a fun job because you're basically being uh, asked to just go out there and try crazy shit. What, I mean, if you say it like this, yes, but <laughs> in practice, the stuff I was asked to do is, uh, it's fun, but it, it, I, I was working on left turns because, uh, really? <laughs> well, when you drive on the right, a left turn is much harder than a right turn if you don't have like a, a protected light. Because you yeah. kind of have to like negotiate through the intersection as the car is passing you and so... Like, uh, yeah, left turn and um, there was, uh, uh, but the, you know, the, the mission was super, uh, super ambitious and super interesting and still yeah. is. Um, the team was fantastic. So the, the office uh, setting was amazing. Yeah, I bet. And uh, I had the lifestyle of a billionaire. 
Really? Yeah. So there was a guy in the office who was always around the office, you know, same and and always at the uh, um, at the cafeteria. And I'm, I, I have a thing like where like it's even like down to the medical level, I have a hard time recognizing people. But I, I thought that this guy is employee. Like I was like, this is funny because he kind of looks like Sergey Brin. And like I, I thought this guy kind of looked like Sergey Brin for about four months until I realized that, oh no, it is Sergey Brin. No, it's actually him. Yeah. And when you think about it... The co-founder like, of Google. Yeah. 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 And so like 90% 90, 90 of his time, he was in the same office as me, talking to the same people as me, walking, you know, wearing the same type of clothes and talk, and, and, and eating, and eating the same, uh, pretty much the same food. So wow. like aside from the 5% of the time where he takes his private, you know, 747 and flies to some private island, 95% and he had the same phone as me, like 95% of his life is, is, is very, very similar to mine. So I joke that I had the lifetime of like a, uh, a multi-billionaire at the time. That's great. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the jokes reminded me of when you said you worked on left turns. There's a mm -hmm. joke that, um, you know, if you're feeling bad about your job or you're insignificant, just remember that it's somebody's job to put turn signals into BMWs. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So, okay, so now help me bridge the, the from there. Like this is post Wall Street, right? That you're at Google X? Yeah. yeah okay. So basically my Wall Street experience was uh, startup hedgefund, Goldman Sachs. Yeah. I did then the... Um, I, I tried a prop shop where I tried to run a strategy on my own uh, as part of like a, a little uh, a mini hedge fund and then Morgan Stanley okay, and then Google X. And then Google X. Okay. So then let's start getting back to Tezos. Um, so I just wanted to touch on one thing you said early, uh, the white papers, they were done under the LM Goodman, which yes. during my research, I read that that was a reference to Leah Goodman who was the Business Week reporter that tried to uh, say that, uh, tried to unveil Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that really made me laugh because I know Leah. Uh, we used to be competitors. She was at uh, Dow Jones and I was at Bloomberg News and we were both writing about the New York Mercantile Exchange where, you know, crude oil and gas has traded the futures market. Um, so uh, is, was, was that, that was you, right? You're L.M. Goodman and you did that because you were still, I think, working on Wall Street and didn't want to get in trouble. No, I, I, you know, first of all, when I started working on Tezos, I told a bunch of people I was working on, on, on Tezos. So, you know, certainly I did not like, uh, I did not, uh, there was no such like, oh, I don't want to get into trouble. Uh, and yes, people have claimed that I am a good man. I have not commented on the topic. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 it's pretty funny because look, I mean, you know, like uh, Liam Edgar's Goodman went by the idea that because the name on the Bitcoin paper was Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, then, you know, maybe that person is really named Satoshi Nakamoto. So for all I know, Liam Edgar's Goodman wrote the Tezos white paper because <laughs> she has the same name. So, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the odds? <laughs> That's good. Uh, it's a pretty meta uh, view. I like that. Um, okay. So, and then, and we're back to, so first of all, you, you, you thought that governance was much more important uh, in a blockchain environment than, than anything out there at that time, it sounds like. And that, that makes sense knowing your background and about thinking about systems and democracy and what, what types of democracy uh, or or how the effects of democracy can be good and that it's not necessarily just uh, inherently a moral thing. Um, what were the other, were, were there other, because out of the box, Tezos, you know, it was proof of stake. It was very fast. Um, you had those governance systems in place. 
so were were those other concerns on your mind as well, and that and that you thought that um, uh, this network, this global network of computers and validators, could be used for much more than what was being done at the time? Yeah, I think one of my initial theses is that, and I've been, you know, I've been also a critic of. Let me let me track back a little bit. There was a meme in 2014 around Bitcoin, which was like, "Meet money is just the first app." And it was like, mm-hmm. wait a second, money is the most important app. Like, and, and, I, and I still believe that. So I would say that money and sort of value have been underhyped and other risk cases have been overhyped overall, which, which doesn't mean that they don't exist. But when I tried to do essentially a synthesis of like, what is this technology? What does it do if it does anything beyond money? Um, I, and, I, and I think I coined this, this idea. The idea I, I'm not sure, but like this is early on, I, I described it as social coordination technology. And I think that's the best way to summarize what it does is like social coordination. So mm-hmm. you can coordinate around money, you can coordinate around the enforcement of contracts and a few, uh, and a few things like this. That, that's how I would, uh, I, I, I would put it. Okay. Uh, but then it seems like speed and um, reliability and scalability were also things that you were working on very early. Um, no, I, I got that wrong. So early, I, actually I... So this wasn't super fast. It wasn't slow, but it wasn't particularly fast when it came out. And I didn't think speed and scalability mattered at all, actually. Um, okay. I, di- I didn't focus on that because my thinking at the time was fundamentally that the, main, the most important use case was going to be money and a store of value and that you would have a network of permissionless centralized actors happen around it. So like even early on with Bitcoin, people were saying like, Bitcoin doesn't scale. And my answer to this was like, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you have a permissionless settlement layer. And if you have this permissionless settlement layer, you will have a bunch of Bitcoin banks who will like arise and allow people to trade. And because they can't be cut off from the Bitcoin network, like you can be cut off from the dollar network, you can be cut off from the banking network. Because people can't be cut off from the Bitcoin network, you know, maybe, maybe those, you know, they will be in Kazakhstan, maybe. So there'll, there'll be some sort of uh, jurisdictional arbitrage, which means that there will exist this thriving uh, financial network of centralized but permissionless actors on top of Bitcoin. So that's how I imagine scaling would take place. Uh, and I think that was wrong. Uh, we've seen that it works a lot better when things are done with smart contracts. Like a typical example is a lot of like those cryptocurrency lenders went bust in the crisis in uh, right. 22, but DeFi protocols actually we you know like did did well through the through the crisis, mm-hmm. uh, and that requires like on-chain scaling. And so I, I got more interested in scaling. I would say circa 2019, I started thinking more of scaling and the later solution. But there was actually had a scaling my, my scaling ID in 2017. One of my most popular blog post was 2017. I was commenting on the sharding in, in, in Ethereum and I proposed uh, essentially using zero on edge proofs as a scaling technique. So, uh, which is now what um, most people are doing with ZK rollups. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but for a while, I, I didn't have really have a scaling solution that I liked. And then I really stumbled onto, onto something that I seemed made sense and worked, uh, I would say, late 2020. And so since then, I would say since 2021, the, the focus of most of the core teams working on Tezos have has been scaling, and but but it, I I was late to thinking about scaling as as being critical. Okay, I wanted to talk about security as well. I think um, Tezos has a has a has a good security record um, going for it, and um, I, I wondered how do you how do you compare it to other layer one blockchains, and then 
most of the time it seems to me that issues arise um, in, in you know, decentralized apps that are on top of those blockchains. So I just was curious how you think about that uh, and the interplay um, between the two. Uh, yeah, so one of the things that I did catch early on was that people would write apps with smart contracts that there would be bugs in those smart contracts and it would cost a lot of, and this block would cost a lot of money. So I, I predicted that fairly well in 2014. And I say, ergo, people are going to invest quite a bit into smart contract security. <laughs> and I got everything right except the last part. <laughs> yeah, like, the last part. <laughs> if you had told me like, you know what, there's going to be a striving ecosystem of smart contracts. No one is going to care about security. People are going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars, which are going to be stole by nation state. And no, and still people are not going to care. It's that last part that, that still floors me. It's just like, I don't understand why people don't invest millions to prevent hundreds of millions being lost. This is, this is still very, very bizarre to me, but it, but it's, it, it is what it is. Yeah, I, I'm with you 100% on that. I don't understand why security and uh, is not the first, absolutely the first thing that people think about and, and, and invest in. Yeah. I mean, I have some hypothesis. It's like, essentially, if, if most apps are basically like driven by like speculation, if we're nice gambling, if we're, if, we're just like, if most yeah. apps are just like pretty people saying gambling, then people say, ah, it's very risky anyway. I'm probably going to lose my money anyway. So whether they lose their money because it was a rug pull or because, you know, this, this thing didn't make sense in the first place or because it was hacked, maybe to them, it's like the same category of risk. Yeah. And it's kind of like reducing the smart contract risk when you're taking massive financial risk in the first place doesn't isn't very meaningful. So that, that I would imagine that's an, that's an explanation. And like more serious projects where you actually like are trying to engage in something that's not risky in the first place, then you don't want the added risk of the smart contracts. That 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 might make some sense. How um you know you were talking about zero knowledge proofs and and rollups and and the layer twos so to speak that have evolved. Um, how What's your take on that? How do you think that's working? And um, it, it, is that, do you think that's the future? Or, or are you guys thinking about doing that? Do you need to do that at Tezos? Uh, I guess is the question. Um, so I, I think that rollup as a scaling solution are absolutely the future. Um, in fact, rollups are so good that even if you don't want to run multiple rollups, you're better off having all of your chain activity in a single rollups than having it on a layer one for a variety of reasons. And the best way to summarize it is that um, on the layer one, every validator needs to do everything and you need to have an honest majority of validators. Whereas in a rollup, you only need one honest operator. And if you only need one honest operator, you can demand a lot more. Um, you can demand that they have uh, a much better hardware. You can hope that they're going, you, you, you can hope that they're going to be anonymous. You can hope that they're going to be in a friendly jurisdiction. It's like you have way more choice if all you need is one person. Whereas if you want an L1 and you're decentralized and you need to have these people like really all over the world, then essentially you, you can do a lot less. So like from a, I would say censorship resistance perspective, from a security perspective, from a throughput perspective, you're way better um, using rollups whether or not they are ZK rollups or optimistic rollup. And that's the key thing is moving from a uh, honest majority assumption to a single honest party assumption. Yeah, does, that's, that, uh, does that tilt you in favor of the zero-knowledge proof rollups rather than optimistic? Uh, well, in optimistic, you know, both need, an optimi both need an honest actor. So if you don't have an honest actor uh, at all with ZK rollup, 
then you're going to have a liveness failure, which means you know your rollup won't, won't advance. And if you don't have an honest actor with optimistic rollup, then you could have a safety failure. So in, uh, from that standpoint, uh, ZK rollup would be superior. However, DK rollup currently they have a very high cost. It's 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 very computer intensive to produce those proofs, mm. so much that the cost of transaction can actually get high, not because of network congestion, just because of the cost of compute that's involved in uh, in making those proofs. So I would say uh, until the, the proving cost comes down quite a bit for zk rollup, I'm more interested in optimistic rollups. Okay, interesting. Um, I want to touch on the ICO a little bit um, because you guys were right in there in 2017. Um, you raised $232 million, which uh, was, I think, a record at the time, only to be broken by Filecoin, if I'm correct. Still on that. Um, you, you you held it in Zug, in Zug I believe, uh, in Switzerland. Um, what was that experience like? And and are, are you do you still have worries about you know anyone coming after you from the United States in terms of like a you know unsecured or unregistered securities offering? Is that in the past or how, how do you think about that? Well, you know the the, the, the the funniest thing is like first of all this this, this fundraiser was conducted by the Tezos Foundation. I was not a I was not a part of the Tezos Foundation. I was basically like running a software company. I was selling my IP to the Tezos Foundation. I was not a part of it. And and some people would say, oh, but really, but no, like, hacks the events that took place after were basically the Tezos Foundation that was led by a bit of a psychopath tried to bankrupt me, uh, show that I very much did, you know, was not a part of the uh, of the Tezos Foundation. So they got sued, but the the the, the problem is like when you are a, uh, you know, one of the person who who sued them was. Uh, he was he was a guy running a cult. He's doing ten years in jail now for raping a, a child in in, in uh, the guy name is Joe Salerno. So the Salerno family from Australia uh, decided to sue the Tezos Foundation in Switzerland uh, based on a contribution in Bitcoin that they sent to them that was included in the Bitcoin network by a Russian miner. And of course, the proper venue for this is California, and I got named personally in the lawsuit, so that was not pleasant. Um, and yeah, that's that's uh, that's two years of my life I'm not getting back. But yeah. uh, uh, look, at the end of the day, uh, you know, when when I got, you know, when I when I did this deal with the Tesla Foundation, I uh, I retained a lot of legal advice. We got the best legal advice we could get at the time, uh, and you know, I, uh, I I I don't think uh, I don't think we could have done a better uh, a better preparation. Am I worried about uh, about lawsuits? I think you know, there's a, bit, a little bit of PTSD. Uh, you know, for a long time in my life, I imagined that being sued was this uh, absolutely horrible thing, uh, and yeah. then I was sued, and and it, and and it was just as expected, absolutely horrible. But I would say, you know, at least you know, once you've lived through it once, um, at least you get like uh, you get a very sick skin. So I certainly have no interest in uh, in being sued again, but uh, I'm very comfortable in uh, in my legal position. Yeah, understood. Um, do you look back at that time and wish you had done things differently, or what? What is? What do you think about when you think about that time? Is there there was some tumult there when you guys were getting off the ground, and and like you mentioned, you know, some some infighting and and things didn't always go as smoothly as I'm sure you would have liked. Um, what what's your takeaway from that? You know, uh, what like almost six years later? Well, I would say infighting was a miss because it wasn't infighting. It was basically the foundation just basically said, you know what, we're not going to honor our contract. We're not going to pay developers. We're not going to launch a network. We're not going to like pay you the money you're supposed to pay you. Yeah. So that's not in those, those are big just things. Like, yeah. There's just a serious foundation trying to defraud me and my company. So <laughs> that's not that's not really infighting. That's that's just like 
uh, being hit in the face. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a ton of things we could have done differently. Uh, and it's often, it's not a very constructive game to just basically go back and like, what is the smallest thing I could change to make things better? Uh, clearly the smallest thing I can change is like, you know, uh, not you know, not not work with this uh, psychopath, or, or uh, th that's probably like the the smallest change with the biggest effect. Uh, but I also like, I, you know, honestly, I prefer the game of uh, uh, like if I had to design uh, Thesos from scratch, you know, what what make different? And I think one of the biggest mistakes was uh, not being faster to market. So mm -hmm. I, I it was very important for me that Thesos launch as proof of stake first, not with proof of work. And you know what is the point of launching a self-governing blockchain that can actually upgrade if you're not going to like use this as a cheat? So I think like being much earlier to markets because I think Tezos could have launched before uh, Ethereum if it had launched in, uh, in proof of work. I think that would have probably been even more uh, uh, even more impactful. So like launch earlier uh, probably would have been uh, would have been the, the the right move by far. Okay. Oh, one one funny thing I, I noticed on your website today that um, you, you still refer to Ethereum as proof of work. So you might want to. Oh, it's still on a yeah. on, a, on a website. Okay, well yeah. the website needs to be updated. I think you know it's kind of like the taint is forever. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's the origin story. Well, um, where where are you? Where do you see things heading now? It's been Wait, a, sorry, Ethereum is proof of work, of course, and it's and it's called Ethereum Classic. You told you, there's, uh, a, there's a fork of Ethereum which is proof <laughs> of stake, which is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could, that's a whole other podcast. We could Sorry, get into that. I, I, I can have a lot of bad face arguments for why <laughs> this has not been modified on the website, but clearly it's just because like I, I, there was a rotation of the of the teams that was updating the website. And yeah, no, it's we'll, okay. We'll get on that. Just thought it was funny. Um, what, so where you know things in crypto are are sort of bleak. If you you know talk to a lot of people, uh, it's certainly uh, uh, public attention. I think is waning. How are you? Um, how are you perceiving all of that, and, and and what what are you excited about, or where do you think things are headed um, in the broader uh, space? I, I think the thing that make me bleak might be different from the thing that make other uh, other people bleak here. Um, you know, uh, was there interest in crypto, or was it just a speculative fervor and uh, and a speculative bubble? And uh, fundamentally, the, the biggest problem is that you know this technology has been there for. Well over uh, 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 like 13 years now, and the product market fits are still very very slim, and they exist and they're beautiful. So, for example, I think uh, we have a huge art community on Tezos, uh, lots of lots of uh, great artists, and, and and we're seeing you know mainstream uh, pickup with uh, with museums displaying Tezos artists and, uh, and, and and launching initiatives. So that's beautiful. Um, it's not a huge total addressable market if you just like think of it from a business perspective but it's beautiful that it's there that it exists and I'm like a huge fan of the of the art community on Tezos so we've seen some of that but definitely the whole you know global adoption and everything on blockchain hasn't uh, uh, hasn't panned out and but that that's also never been me in some sense you know I got into Tezos because I loved the I love that it was I love the fringe aspects of it uh, and you know to some extent it's we have to maybe more temper people's expectation uh, of what the technology can do, what it can provide. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think there are non-fringe use cases, there are mainstream use cases, but the thing to be bleak about is like, why, why are they so little? Why is so much of it basically nonsense? Why is so much of it fraud? That's, yeah. I would say, is part of the, is part of the problem. Well, I, yeah, that's interesting because I, I noticed um, 
been doing research on you guys that you just, you just partnered recently with the California DMV to put digital versions of car register car titles on your blockchain. Um, yeah. You, so that seems like, I mean, you, you, I'm sure if I walked into the DMV and did that, I, I probably wouldn't even know, right? The back end is the Tezos blockchain. Is, is that sort of the idea here? And it seems like, is that counter to what you're saying where it's not really fringe, but there are use cases that, um, you know, large institutions are, are realizing could, you know, help them update their, how, how they do things? Well, it's interesting because Tezos is really a generic technology. And but I, I can't say that personally, I understand in details, like the way the DMV operates, the way they, the, the way they do title. And so I, you know, I, um, I think it's, I think it's wonderful if people can find, you know, can make the technology work for them. Uh, and, and it seems to have been the case with the, uh, uh, with the DMV. And this is, you know, ultimately what I'd like to do is, is build technology, not having necessarily to think about like the ways that people are going to use, the ways that people are going to, uh, to, fi to find it useful, but just, Put it out there. Focus on things like throughput, latency, uh, developer experience, ease of use, um, and then and then see creativity. I, I did not necessarily anticipate, um, you know, in 2014 that art would be such uh, art would be so big on uh, on blockchains. I did think about um, book signing. I thought that ebook signing would be a thing on uh, on, on blockchain. So like NFTs for ebooks was one of my earliest uh, ID, but I didn't really necessarily uh, see the see the scale of it, and that's the most beautiful thing is when you see like these use cases pop up that you would never think about because they're not necessarily in the industry that you know about or a use case that you're personally familiar with. Yeah. Do you have much um, of a music community on Tezos? Yes, there is. Um, if you go to DNS.xyz, for example, they focus on uh, on music uh, NFTs, and there's a lot of uh, artists, in particular hip hop artists. Um, who have been releasing um, music yeah. on uh, on uh, on Tezos? I'm, I'm I'm super excited about music as a use case because music is a form of art that is it's probably the most popular form of art. It's a form of art that is consumed by the most people in the world. Uh, people love collecting music, but with the move to streaming, a lot of the joy of collecting has gone away. And if NFTs or digital collectibles can bring back this, this joy of collecting to the music world. I think that's you know if there's it, it's one of the few things that are around there which we, we generally have the, the 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 potential to touch hundreds of millions of people, and yeah. there's not that many of those in the in the blockchain space. Yeah, I agree. And and the more and I've said it before on this podcast and other places, like the more you learn about the music industry and how it works and how it's just set up at every step of the way to screw artists out of money and control, you realize how ripe um, that whole industry is for you know, getting more into a, a, a permissionless peer-to-peer -peer system where, you know, musicians can interact directly with their fans. Um, and then certainly the uh, streaming model that you mentioned is, is completely broken. I, I saw this uh, tweet. Uh, it was, can't remember the artist, but it was, you would know it if I said his name, but he, he said that uh, he testified before Congress that he, he, one of his most popular songs streamed 55 million times. And from those 55 million streams, he made $1,700. So, yeah. you know. It's bleak numbers. And, and I think it's the thing, is like I think the fans, if they, if they can support the artists directly, would be willing to support in much, uh, yeah. much larger amounts. Absolutely. And that's definitely not in the music company's interest to do that. So that's the big fight going on there. But I think it's a really interesting one to keep an eye on. Um, 
Well, Arthur, this has been fascinating. Thank you for being so forthcoming and just like sharing your story with me. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, obviously, you're very well known out there, but if people want to learn more about Tezos or the foundation, uh, where, where would you point them? And, and if they wanted to learn more about you, can you tell people how to get in touch? Uh, so for Tezos, uh, you can go to tezos.com, which is uh, uh, a website that will tell you all about Tezos and apparently will give you slightly outdated information about Ethereum. <laughs> uh, for the Tezos Foundation, um, tezos.foundation. So the Tezos Foundation is a nonprofit located in Switzerland uh, with a mission to help uh, foster the adoption of the, uh, of the Tezos protocol. Uh, and if you want to uh, be in touch with me or learn about me, I'm, uh, I'm active on, uh, on Twitter under the handle at uh, Arthur B. Excellent. All right, Arthur, again, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon to see and check in on where Tezos is, is headed. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes.